Welcome to Getting to 5050, brought to you by Pratima Rao Gluckman. Each episode, we bring a thought leader who discusses the changes we can all make to help bridge the gender gap at the very top. Today, we have around 5% of women running Fortune 500 companies. How can we get to 50% so that we have diversity of thought and opinion that is so critical to the success of organizations and humanity in general? Welcome to the Getting to 5050 podcast. Today, I'm excited to have Jennifer Kenny on the show. Jennifer Kenny is a speaker, mentor, and she trains and facilitates on the topic of applied transformation as an innovative practice with a specific focus on two of the big levers of transformation, which is technology and gender diversity. Prior to setting up a practice, Jennifer was CIO at SRI International. She was responsible for the transformation of the information technology organization to drive business innovation. She has presented at Stanford University Executive Briefing Program and has lectured at the University of Santa Clara Levy School of Business MBA program. She has presented at the Women in Technology Annual Conference and spoke at the Irish Female Leaders in Silicon Valley event at Stanford Design School. I first saw Jennifer Kenny at the Women Transforming Technology and I was very impressed. And I followed up with a workshop, which was fantastic. It's such an amazing honor to have Jennifer on the show. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you very much. Pleasure to talk to you. I wanted to start off our conversation by talking about your story. If you can tell me just your story about how, what made you such a remarkable woman. Thank you. Remarkable woman. Okay. Um, So I think a lot of it was um, blissful ignorance. Um, It never occurred to me that I couldn't do whatever it was that I wanted to do. Um, I got brought up in a house where my dad was one of the sort of leading thinkers in engineering in Ireland at the time when I was growing up. And so I spent a lot of time with him and it was always, of course, you can do whatever you want. So I waltzed off into the world believing I could do whatever I want. And nobody told me I couldn't until I started working. And so I think the, the big starter for me was just blind faith, uh, which proved to be very valuable. And I was also came from a family of um, entrepreneurs and also a family of men who had been brought up by a very, very strong woman who was my grandmother, who was one of the first women to graduate from university in Ireland. And so for me, it's been fascinating to watch the domino effect of strong women as they impact families and countries, because My uncle, who was older than my father, ended up becoming an Irish Supreme Court judge. And the first lady president of Ireland used to be his law clerk. So Mary Robinson, he hired her when women law clerks were not being hired by anybody, particularly ones who were married. And she worked for him for for quite a while and ended up then becoming president of our first lady president of Ireland. So big generational impact of strong women and very proud of my granny who I never met. You started off by saying you were raised by parents who basically said you could do whatever you wanted to do. And I find that's the experience for most women. And then something changes. And you said it changes when you start working. Do you have any experiences when you started to work and you felt, oh, there's a problem here? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I did uh, have a, de- a master's degree in geotechnical engineering and I was working for an engineering firm in London and I wasn't making enough money to pay the rent and and buy important products like Irish butter. It's sort of rite of passage for Irish people. <laughs> so I went to the director that I was working for and I said, I need to do field work. And he sat back in his chair and he said, we like to keep our women in the office. And I thought, the only thing that came to mind, my visual was a potted plant. And I thought, well, I have no interest in staying in the office. I love being out in the field. I love doing field work. And I was confused. And I said to him, why would I not do field work? And he goes, no, our women stay in the office. And I quit um, the same day. I basically said to him, well, then I'm sorry, but I'm not staying. And I walked out the door and left, resigned. And I called up my sister and I went, I have no money and I've just quit my job. And so I need to find something quickly. <laughs> so, so I ended up actually working for Anderson Consulting at the time, now Accenture. Uh, they were looking for, for people who were interested in studying in computer science and who had gone to some of the top universities. And I fortunately had gone to Imperial. And so they basically interviewed me and hired me within a couple of weeks. And I was just incredibly lucky and ended up getting the equivalent of a computer science degree from them because very few people were graduating at the time with full-blown computer science degrees. So I haven't decided whether or not that particular incredibly biased man did me a favor or stopped me from ever having a career in oil and gas, which which is which is sad in in of itself, but I end it ended up launching me off into technology, which has been wonderful. Yeah, and you were brave walking away from that job. It's very hard to stand up, advocate for yourself, uh, and quit. And it wasn't like you walked away and had a lot of money. I mean, it's easier when you have money and you can walk away from it. But it's pretty amazing that you stood up for yourself, advocated for yourself, and those were your values. You were raised with those values. Well, I can't decide whether it was courage or just complete and utter indignation that anyone would <laughs> treat me differently because I was a woman. And I think it was a little bit of the Irish hot-headedness um, and complete indignation that this man thought he could tell me what I wanted to do with my life. And also the fact that I I had a lot of belief in my own resilience, that I could find a way to survive and make it work, even though I was in a foreign country and I had no no resources and very little backup. It was more determination than it was anything else, determination not to be pigeonholed and, and put down. And so I think it was a, a lot of just hot-headed indignation, which can, be, can look like courage. <laughs> <laughs> but I do know of another woman who worked in the oil and gas industry. She pretty much made her career in that industry she told me stories like horrible stories of just the it's more explicit gender bias it's not implicit like it's in tech tech is it's unconscious and uh, well this i'm not saying that there isn't explicit bias in tech but most of the times it's unconscious like in our hiring practices or whatever but this woman had to wear sports bras and she had the story where she said she wore a sports bra so she wanted to be flat chested she didn't want to indicate she was a woman and so she cut her hair really short she would wear pantsuits and wear these sports bras just so she could be like the men yeah and I think that's hard and 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 I think that changed a bit quite a bit 
because I think a lot of that was, you know, when I graduated, women didn't work on the oil rigs. I think there were two women who were working in the entire industry who were on the rigs in the North Sea. And, you know, there were no women's bathrooms and there were a bunch of things like that. I think a lot of those have changed from a simply legislation standpoint, but I'm not sure that the the real changes that need to happen, which are people educating themselves and really taking the time to understand the value that women bring. I, I'm not sure how much of that has happened in oil and gas or in tech. Um, and I think that there are some of the of the global corporations, interestingly enough, more so than than the national ones, are actually leading the charge on taking the time to educate people on their gender biases and and the implications of that for the success of the company as a whole. And I think that's wonderful. And I think that's thanks to women like the lady who you mentioned, and to people like you know like us who have who have said, I am not going to stand for being treated differently. And I think that the more of us that, that do that in a in a compassionate, respectful way, understanding that a lot of people are just blind to their own biases. I mean, I'm sure there was no malice with this man who told me that I had to stay in the office like a potted plant, but I'm sure it was just ignorance. I think the people who have led the way on that are, are we stand on their shoulders and I'm deeply grateful to them. And do you have a story where you've you persisted in your career? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about that question. So I think you persist for the first sort of 20 or 30 years of your life, just persisting because as a girl, you're always marginalized in terms of what it is you choose to do if you choose to do anything that is non-traditional. So I was used to that. I grew up, there were no girls on my road for me to play with. So I always played with the guys and I always had to stand up for myself in that environment. Not that they were trying to put me down, but it was just they were used to engaging differently and I had to stand up. So I think I learned how to persist very early on. Um, and I think you 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 consciously persist and you consciously then go go back or complain to your parents or to your friends or to your colleagues. And then after a while, it just becomes an integral part of what it is that you do. You, you, it just becomes the norm for you. So I think, you know, you, you persist for the first 20 years of your career and then persistence just becomes part of who you are. Yeah, it just becomes part of your DNA. You talked about playing with the boys growing up, and that's exactly what I did. I played cricket with the boys and it was standing up, fighting back <laughs> yeah. and all that. I was literally called like a tomboy. I was I had short hair. I wanted to be like the boys. And I think that just stays with you. But you don't realize that at that young age, I don't think I saw much of the differences between men and women growing up, even when I went to university. Even with working, I didn't feel that because I think it's so implicit. It's there, but you can't really say if it's there. And I think it was in 2016 was like this aha moment for me. It was like, oh my God, yes, there's a problem. Yeah. And I think for a lot of women, they who are prepared to talk about this work and have conversations around this work and see it as an integral part of what they do and part of the importance of being in the positions that they're in are women who have had that aha. 
Um, and for me, that happened. I got cancer when I was in my 30s and I was looking to raise money for a startup. And I began to look back and go, I'm, I keep beating my head against a brick wall. I'm working harder than anybody else. I'm driving like crazy. I'm, you know, so focused on on working to make this business successful. And, and I couldn't understand why I wasn't progressing in a way everyone else around me, a.k.a. the guys were. And then I finally began to realize that I was actually um, working so hard to fit in and be successful and run a company and do all of those things that I was sort of forsaking who I was as a woman. And so I went through a huge process of sort of learning and study and mindful introspection and therapy and all kinds of things to go and kind of pick back up the pieces of what it meant to be a woman and be a leader because it, it simply wasn't working. It was destroying my health and, and it wasn't working. And I was fighting in a game that I was never going to win. At the time I was looking for money for my company, 3% of venture money went to women startups. And once I, once I realized those statistics, I was like, okay, I got some preliminary funding. I'm one of the 3%, but let me not play that game anymore because that's a fool's game. That's sort of like playing the lottery. And, and you have absolutely no say and no control over it. And it's just a system that's fundamentally broken. And I think a lot of us are working to try and improve and change that because we recognize how damaging it is for society as a whole. And I hope we will start making some changes because the VC world is pretty scary. And I have some friends who are uh, VCs and who live in that world. And they have some terrifying stories just around uh, the, the, the sexual abuse and Women being women saying, you know, men saying, hey, we'll fund your company if you have sex with me. It's just insane. It blows my mind because the world that I live in in tech <laughs> is a lot less shocking than what I hear in the VC world. Well, I think that the sad thing about it is it's seriously damaging for the entire country because there are other developing countries who are moving themselves away from that way of thinking about funding and all of those biases much, much faster than we are. And they are ultimately going to be more successful than we are from an innovation standpoint if we don't wake up and realize the difference. I mean, one of the one of the movies that I think is really worth people looking at if they haven't already seen is The Imitation Game, the movie about the Enigma machine for code hacking in World War II. Um, and really just sort of looking at what went on there. So, you know, Alan Turing was gay, um, uh, was her name, Joan, Joan Clark, was a woman, and they both got completely marginalised through the process, and, and the value of their work was only brought through because the rest of the team kind of covered for them. And in, in the movie, how true it is, I don't know, in the movie, Turing clearly recognised that Joan Clark was a lot more capable than, than he was mathematically. And yet she, it was really hard for her to be able to participate and contribute. And so if you think about the aggregated history of that over, over a couple of hundred years, you realise we're wasting the capacity of half of humanity. And it's just like, why would we choose to do that? That's just silly. Yeah. It is. Just looking at my career, I worked at startups all through before I joined VMware. And even within VMware, I'm an, kind of an entrepreneur at heart mm -hmm. <laughs> in the sense that I tend to work at places which are smaller teams, building something undefined and shipping like the 1.0 version. 
But I am afraid to take that step. I'm afraid to jump off that cliff because it's terrifying. And when I hear these stories about women not getting funded, it terrifies me even more. It, I need to have a technical co-founder and it can't be a woman. It has to be a man. I've heard stories where the woman founder sends an email, they will not respond to her. But when the male sends an email, they will respond to the male. And that's not the world I can tolerate. Yeah. And, and I don't know, afraid's an interesting term. I mean, for me, once I realized how ridiculously stacked against me all the odds were, I was just like, hey, you know what? You go play your own game. I'm not interested. And I think that's happening. And that's what I hear you pointing to. I think that's happening right across the board. A lot of women are just going, and there's been an exodus of senior women in corporate America, really saying, this is a ridiculous game I don't want to play. It's a game that where the odds are stacked against me. It's not a level playing field by any stretch of the imagination. I'm going to take my intelligence and capability and expertise and apply it somewhere else. And I think that, you know, if you look at the percentage of women who are leaving corporate America and the percentage of women who are starting their own businesses, those numbers are clearly pointing to the fact that we've, we've established a game that is not serving the greater country because we are losing half the talent to go do other things. And some of those things are fantastic things associated with not-for-profits or starting their own companies. But in the end of the day, it's the corporations that are going to suffer. Yes. And if you look at the percentages today, you just have, what, 6% CEO women running Fortune 500 companies. If you also look at the statistics of the number of women that leave tech in their first year, it's 37%. And the number of women who leave tech in their entire career is 57%. So we put these women through STEM degrees, we get them into tech industry, and then they leave because the odds are stacked against them. Exactly, exactly. And I think that for that to change, um, and, and I think it is changing because I think what's happening is we're seeing particularly with artificial intelligence and with, as you and I were talking earlier, with blockchain technologies, we're seeing technologies that require an awful lot more understanding of how things work together, an understanding of broader system thinking, an understanding of collaboration, an understanding of integration, a higher level of cooperation required for them to be successful, much more partnerships required. We're seeing technologies that are demanding that we leverage more of what I would refer to as the way women lead. And I think there's going to be more and more of a demand for that. And we're not going to be successful if we just continue down the same path. And I think it's pretty clear that if, if you acknowledge that we've gotten as far as we have with half of our capacity and the opportunity is to get much further in terms of sustainability, in terms of the higher quality of life, in terms of better distribution of wealth, in terms of all of the things that we know will make our lives better on the planet, I think we need to tap into the other half of our capacity. Human, or, you know, human beings need to tap into the other half of their capacity. And let's talk a little bit about intervention. What I'm finding is in a woman's career, you have to intervene at every stage in her life. Is it middle school? Is it elementary? Is it when they're born? You know, when a girl's born, we put a pink hat on her head. She's playing with princesses. Yeah, it's interesting. I was at an event a few months ago. Mary Robinson, Ireland's first woman president, came over and met with about 20 of us women leaders in Silicon Valley. And, and she said to us, why have you been successful? Why have, what's been different for you? 
And a lot of people went, oh, it was my parents, it was how I was brought up, it was my education, because education is essentially free in Ireland, third level education, second and third level education. And so it was a lot of those factors. And OK, all of those factors, I think, are really important. But I think the biggest factor, which which was sitting in front of us and, and we didn't discuss, was that we had a role model. That, you know, once there was a lady president, well, all of us could become president. Why wouldn't us? Why wouldn't we? So I think the interventions are both just education and awareness on behalf of parents bringing children up. And I think some of that is obviously changing. I'm particularly fond of, is the toy right for a boy or a girl? And the answer is, well, do they use their genitals to work the toy? No, they don't. <laughs> right? Then the toy is relevant for whoever wants to play with them. And I always played with, you know, Meccano and Lego and stuff. It never occurred to me that I, that I shouldn't. Um, and also, I think a lot of it is role models. And I think we're getting more of those every day as women are moving away. And I think very wisely moving away from leaning in and trying to lead like men and beginning to stand up and start leading like women. And that's been a lot of the focus of my work. It's like, how, how can you be a powerful woman leader in your own right? not mimicking and behaving and competing the way men do, but in your own right. Because I think in your own right is what society needs today more than they need women trying to behave like men. Yeah. And this whole thing about role models is so critical because when I got stuck in my career, I looked around, I was like, there's no role models here. Yeah. Absolutely no role models. So I went and I talked to a bunch of women and you know, I wrote their stories just to create these role models for young girls, for myself. It was a journey I had to go through just to make things possible for myself and my peers and for women, just so they could read someone's story and say, oh, I can relate to that. And they were successful. And so I could be successful. Exactly. And I think it's also relatable role models. You know, when I was um, working in Booz Allen, which is, you know, one of the big consulting firms, I there were a lot of women there, not a lot, there were two or three senior women there. And I looked at them and I thought, I don't want to be like them. They had sacrificed their entire sense of who they were to be principals and partners. And I looked at them and I looked at how they dressed and how they conducted themselves and who they were. And I thought, I am not remotely interested in being like any of them. And I left because of that. And a lot of it was I needed to be working with people who I deeply respected as women, not deeply respected as the role that they were playing. And that's hard to find. Now, I think there's more room every day for women to actually behave like women and and, and lead like women rather than there is for them to have to just be one of the guys. I think there's more room for that every day. And I think that's where the authenticity is so critical. I think we're, you know, creating role models of women behaving and acting like men does not entice younger women to join and rightly so. Right. That, that's a great point. But it's it's hard, though. You know, my husband keeps joking about this. He always tells me, oh, this is Pratima's world and I live in it. Um, <laughs> and the way I think about the world is it's a man's world and, you know, the women just live in it. Uh, if you look at everything, a lot of things are designed by men. Yeah. I wondered at airports when I was, uh, you know, early on in my career, I traveled a lot and I would go to these airports, like I'd fly out on a Monday, fly back on a Friday, I'd be on a plane again on a Monday. So I didn't have time to do a manicure or a pedicure, or get my hair done or anything. I was just on the road 
constantly and I'd be sitting at the airport and I would be like, oh my God, I wish they would just have a manicure salon here or a, now they do. 15, 20 years ago, they didn't have that. Like everything was designed by men. Even our bras are designed by men. <laughs> my, my, my most irritating one is um, the when you drive into a garage and you take a ticket to park your car. Well, the ticket machine is always about three more inches further away than you can actually lean out of your car without opening the door. That's because men have longer arms. <laughs> Same thing with ATM. Have you noticed that? It bugs me because I have to drive so close to an ATM machine to get money out. And if I don't, then I'll be like my head and my feet, everything spilling out of the car. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't realize that, but that's interesting. So I have the benefit of being left-handed and the world is designed by right-handed people for right-handed people. So for me, I find it more humorous than anything else. Every time I I discover that, oh, look, men design that for themselves and it doesn't fit me. It's like, oh, right-handed people design that for themselves and it doesn't fit me. So for me, it's more a point of humor than it is anything else. And so those sort of things, I'm just like, oh, look, there we go. <laughs> I know. This, it, sometimes you just see humor in that. Like, you know, my husband and I walk crossing the street and, uh, you know, you see the white man like asking you to cross the street. Like you see a hand and then you see the white man. Yeah. And I looked at him and I said, apparently women don't cross the street. It's <laughs> only the man. <laughs> it's like yeah. ridiculous. A lot of things are designed by men. And so going back to the point of why we behave like men in the workplace is if you can be successful if you're like the men. And that's why women tend to behave like that. And they take on these male characteristics. Yeah, and I think some of that is what, you know, we covered in the workshop that, I, that I've been doing is, is really the world does not need more men. I mean, literally, it does not need more men. The world needs more women to be part of designing the future, to be part of determining what artificial intelligence will look like, to be part of determining how we're going to put value-based judgments into blockchain decisions. The world needs more women who are looking at how do we innovate for what we cannot see for what I refer to as the space between things. And I think that what's been missing for me, and it's taken me a long time to, to realize this, is we're all very well trained and schooled in what is leadership by men for men. We have no words and no language for understanding what is leadership by women for women. The closest that we get to it is saying, oh, you know, women are relationship oriented. I'm like, please, God, help me listen to someone saying that again. Because I think that what we're looking at is women are really powerful when it comes to figuring out how things are all connected to each other, how, how, how strategy gets implemented across a company where they can understand the impact it's going to have on every individual in the company. I think there's a lot of distinctions that we can begin to introduce, which is what I'm working on, begin to introduce that, that really point to the difference and the value that women bring when they lead and help men understand what they're seeing when they're seeing fantastic women leading as women. 
Warren Buffett's been doing a lot of talking around it to say, you know, um, if you can visualize what would happen if we stop, if we were able to use 100% of our leadership capacity. And he talks about it as, you know, we've seen what we can accomplish with 50% of human capacity. Imagine if we used 100. And for me to be able to use 100, we've got to start understanding what that other 50% really does and what the value is that they bring and how to leverage it and how to talk about it and how to understand it and how to integrate it and how those two capacities actually amplify each other. I'm looking forward to the, the generation, two or three generations from now, actually moving beyond binaries, which are boring and a waste of human capacity uh, and moving to the point where leaders are just leaders. They're not men or women, they're just leaders. Yeah. And when I first met you, I knew you were onto something. I thought what you came up with was so powerful for me. I was thinking more of having these role models, but but not thinking of, oh, we're taking on these male characteristics. This is how we function and this is how it is. It's kind of accepting the status quo and you're pretty much changing that, which which I think is amazing. Like how do we get men into these conversations and how do we get men to accept women as women leaders and call that leadership? Well, I think they're very willing to. So I did a, because I've been experimenting with how to help people think about this and see it faster and quicker so that they can act on it more, more effectively and immediately. And I did a session a couple of months ago with a, with a group of, of women, actually, and want to do a lot more with men. But I did one with a group of women and I said to them, I put up a picture of a chair and I said to them, so will you please describe this and tell me the value of it without using the word chair and without telling me what it's used for. And so they talked to each other for one minute and then they gave up and started talking about the weather and their children and their lives and their jobs and whatever. And so I let them do it for five minutes because I said, this is a five minute exercise. And then I said, okay, now put up your hands, everyone who stopped doing that after a minute. And they all laughed and put up their hands. And I said, so here's the deal is if you're a man and you have say, five female colleagues that you respect and you value and you appreciate them, and they do really cool stuff, but you've no words for it. And what you do when you need that really cool stuff done that just makes meetings better or projects better or technology development better or teams coalesce better is you pull that person in and you plunk them in the middle of it and you go, could you just go do your thing? And I had done hundreds of interviews with women asking them, how many times do you get pulled into meetings or get pulled onto projects to do your thing? And they all laugh because it's happened to every single woman who you can, who, who's, you know, observes these things well enough. And, and they laugh. And so I think for me, what's happening is men are perfectly willing to play the game. We just got to tell them what the game is and how to talk about it. And how to understand what it is that women are doing and take away the mystery from um, how women are leading and what it is that they're doing and how they're adding value and why when they say something, this is what they're seeing and this is what they're pointing to. Uh, I mean, I've worked with men almost exclusively my whole life, fortunately and unfortunately. I've built gender balance teams below me, but I very rarely have the privilege of working for women. Um, and and I love men and I enjoy working with them and I think they're fantastic and they're capable and they're brilliant and they're you know as good and bad as we are but if we don't give them words to describe what it is we do and help them see what it is that we're doing on a consistent level across the entire gender we're asking them to make a leap forward that 
nobody should have to make. I mean, nobody's described for them what it is that we're doing. And, and I think it's up to us to do that. It's up to some of us to lead that. And I'm positioning myself to do that uh, and really help men understand, you know, what is Pratima doing when she's convening a team as successfully as she's doing? Is that unique to her? Or can another hundred women do something similar? And can I talk about it? And how do I promote her for it? And how do I cultivate, how do I help her groom other women to do the same thing? Should that be part of our leadership development programs? Those sort of questions. I think once we start asking those sort of questions, we position ourselves to turn a corner and include men rather than saying, please join us as allies because we think it's the right thing to do. We're saying, hey, we can show you what it is that we're doing and we can show you how it adds value and we can show you how to leverage it and we can show you how it can help you deliver on your project or your bottom line or your top line. Um, and here's how to utilize it. And I think that there isn't a man in the country that wouldn't put their hands up for that. Agreed. I absolutely agree. And I love what you said. But the problem is that it's very hard for women to articulate that. And it's either has to do with confidence or imposter syndrome. It's hard to stand up and talk for yourself and advocate for yourself and tell them, hey, you know, I bring value to this table. I think a lot of women struggle with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of women struggle with that because um, we have relied, because the HR departments in large corporations measure leadership by half of the population. They, they, they develop leadership for half of the population and they expect the rest of us to fit into it. And I think the big lever now is if we can convince leading thinkers in human resource development to understand that we have everything we have done has been skewed towards 50%. We need to move it now to 100%. And then we open the door for women to start having those conversations. I think relying on individual women to do it is too hard. And it's and it's also not productive. Yeah, fantastic. It, it is. Yeah, and it's and it's you know, it's demanding too much. So I think if we're able to open the door, because because then men and women can understand it. And and what I love, Pratima, what I absolutely love about the next generation is they're so non-binary that they are already demanding that we move beyond the gender binary and, and that we really begin to amplify each other. So I think for me, there's a huge push right now by the millennials, thank you millennials, that um, uh, that is going to demand that human resources rethink what is leadership inside our corporation to where it is not, you know, a, a white man called John who's 56 who's always the CEO. Um, and, and uh, you know, if you want to hire and keep millennials, you're going to have to start playing a non-binary game. And I think the, the requirement for playing a non-binary game is to understand how does the other 50% lead and begin to incorporate that into our understanding of leadership. Fantastic. Oh, my God. I learn so much from you every time we have a conversation. It's it's funny. You talk <laughs> about the uh, younger generation. I mean, they give me a lot of hope, the millennials. Yes. It's amazing. And I'm so happy that they can do, they, they'll, they'll do amazing things that'll pave path for my daughter. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, so my daughter's a millennial, right? But I think what's going to happen with them is what happens with with what happened with us is, you know, one of them, I was talking to one of them the other day and she said, it's like hitting flypaper. It's like all of a sudden you're moving along, everything's going fine and splat, you're stuck because you've hit the flypaper. So I think it's up to us to help 
remove the flypaper, right? I mean, I'm now uh, you know, looking at, okay, I'll probably work for another 15 years and then I'll swan around the world doing yoga or whatever. But, but for me, in those 15 years, if I haven't helped remove the flypaper for the millennials, I am doing them a huge disservice because they are gloriously blind, as we were. You know, uh, we started off this conversation with the example of, well, I never expected to be discriminated against until I went to work. Work. And then I realized that it happens every day. And what I want for them is if we can actually remove the binaries for them so that they don't expect binaries and they're going to hit the flypaper of the hard binary of leadership. And if we can help remove that for them, then we're doing them the service that is really our job to do. Um, you know, because if you're not making it better for the next generation on the planet, you're sort of a bit of a waste of space. Yeah. And I think the, you know, the millennials also wonder when we talk about all of this, they're like, oh my God, like you have to struggle with all this. It's different, but it's also challenging for them as well. So, yeah. And I think they find it hard to believe, like we're talking about this and they're sort of like, oh, we don't need to talk about this. We've got it solved. And by the, at the same time, they're the ones who are going into the workplace where this is still prevalent. And, and, you know, we're, we're the bridge to try and make that change happen. Now, obviously, they're the ones who are demanding and expecting it, um, but we're the ones who are going to have to help to implement it. Yeah. And, you know, the other day I did a keynote at Santa Cruz. It was a Santa Cruz meetup. And right after the keynote, there was this really young kid. He just walked up to me. He didn't say a word. And he gave me a hug. It was... <laughs> And he had these two friends standing next to him and they were just looking at him like, what's up, dude? And he just gave me a hug and he walked away. He didn't say a word. But I think what I got out of that was he just was very deeply grateful for what I talked about. I talked about my daughter and I talked about how things are going to be for her when she grows up. And it was a lot of my work is around my daughter in some sense. She's been my inspiration. And I think that really deeply touched a lot of the people in the audience because this is still happening. And I need to do something about it. It was just this, it, it was just this amazing moment. It was just silence, but there was, there was so many words that were spoken. It was just so cool. Yeah. And I was doing some work with um, some high school, I was mentoring some high school kids and, and three boys were doing, and they were, they were boys, three boys were doing um, uh, a program looking at gender equity in technology. And I was, of course, I was all over it. And they basically said, we never really understood, you know, how much an issue it was. And we've got sisters and we want to go and change things so that our sisters have to deal with the sort of stuff that you've all dealt with. And for me, it was huge because it was, first of all, I think that generation is so much more attuned and aware. Now they are going to get sucked into the system at some point, And obviously we have to change that. But they are so much, they've been with so many strong girls who they adore and respect, that there is so much more room for them to be, to transcend the binary than, than there has been in, in, in the past. So I think, you know, we are making progress. I am hugely optimistic, but that is my nature and part of my, my, my cross to bear, I guess. But um, uh, I think we are making progress. I think it's just a lot slower than it needs to be. And I think it's also putting our economy and our innovation capacity and our ability to continue to live on the planet at risk. So my last question, Jennifer, this is amazing. I can talk to you for hours. My last question is about uh, people of color and women of color. For women of color, it's not just a glass ceiling. It's a concrete ceiling. So it's hard to know what's happening on the, on the second floor. Yeah. 
And how do we change that for people of color and women of color? Because large part of the population are women of color and people of color. It's tough when we ignore that demographic. Yeah, absolutely. Could not agree more. Um, and 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 first of all, I'm delighted that you are actively going out looking for, you know, who are these strong, amazing women. Um, I grew up in a in Ireland in a predominantly um, white environment, and it never to me people of color were were interesting and fascinating and amazing, but it never occurred to me that they were different. Um, so so it never crossed my mind. I had no history because it was so predominantly white. I had zero history of racism um, other than that, you know, Irish people were regularly um, considered as second class citizens in the UK. Um, so so when I came over here, I was I was flabbergasted. I, I, it's taken me it's taken me 20 years to understand the depth of it. Um, and 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 I find it um, I find it offensive. I find it heartbreaking, and it really pisses me off. And and uh, as you just, as you heard earlier on, Jennifer Kenny when she's pissed off, it's a little <laughs> bit of a scary thing. So a couple of very specific things on that. First of all, I think for the majority of white women, they do not understand white privilege. For white women and men, we don't understand white privilege. I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done, um, personal work for individual white women and men to understand the depth of their privilege and understand the nuances of it and how it shows up in everyday life all the time. I mean, it is there, it is real, and it is scary. Um, so I think that there's a woke aspect that needs to happen there, and that then those people need to recognize and make a point of bringing women of color into their teams and go and actively look for those people, because the untapped potential is enormous. I mean, it's just huge, right? And we can't possibly advocate for gender equality and not advocating for racial equality, because the the principles are the same. So that's one thing. The other thing is to make a point of supporting organizations that support people of color. My friend, Amy Allison, I'm very proud to call her my friend, was, has been listed by Politico as one of the, uh, as the pa- part of the power list for uh, people of color in politics, specifically women of color. Um, and you saw the impact of that in the, in the last elections, huge percentage of women of color in the house, which is, which is a first and is absolutely fantastic. And Amy's one of the, one of the absolute power players behind that. Um, and, and, um, you know, for, for me, the idea that we would be different because of our skin color is just mad. Um, so you hire for the smartest and the best and you go out of your way to look at the untapped potential um, and, and you wake up to your own privilege uh, and, and then you look at who and how you can support uh, and and be active about it. I don't think you can be passive about it. There was a lot of thinking, I think, from the 80s that said the way that you take care of racism is that you treat people of color the same. I don't think you treat people of color the same. I think you treat people of color better and give them more opportunities um, because they have been the ones who have had less for the, you know, for as long as we've been around. Uh, and I think that there's loads of fabulous untapped potential there and you'd be mad as a leader not to tap into it. So sorry, it's one of my soapboxes. It pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's fantastic. Uh, there's a National Geographic article which talks about, it says racism myth, and it talks about the origin of uh, just people. And we're all, Af- we all come from Africa. Yeah. 
And uh, the other day too, someone was, it was a class or something. And somebody said, oh, do you do 23andMe? And this guy said, yeah, I did 23andMe. And so he said, so what's your ancestry? And then he goes off and he says, I'm, you know, I'm Russian, blah, blah. And then he's like, yeah, but, you know, I'm African. <laughs> I come from Africa, right? And so there is this root origin we all come from, and we just migrated to different places. People who went far away from the sun ended up having white skin, and then we just evolved. Yeah, but I don't think that you can possibly advocate for gender equality and not advocate for racial equality. I mean, you would want to have a schism in the middle of your brain to support that thinking. Like, why would I be less capable because I happen to have, you know, different genitals? Well, why would someone be less capable because they happen to have different melanin? I mean, it's just insane so for me it's it's more about you know nature has given us this huge diversity and abundance and we are deeply disrespectful and unappreciative if we don't figure out how to leverage it end of story thank you so much jennifer this it's always amazing to talk to you i i walk away learning uh, tons you do manage to find the things i get indignant about <laughs> And I can't wait uh, to read your book. Your workshop was amazing. I learned so much from it. Do you want to talk a little bit about your book and what you're doing Thank there? Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. So book coming out in 2019. The book is called Stand Up, Groundbreaking Ways to Speak Your Value as a Woman Leader. I'm hoping lots of CEOs and wonderful VPs of HR read it so that we can actually change the playing field rather than try to change the individual players, which I think is asking a little bit much, although we'll do some of that as well. Um, and really looking to sort of tell a little bit of my story as a pathway for other women, because it has been a, it's been a tough journey and I've learned a lot. And then also give some frameworks for how to think about things differently uh, and some frameworks for how to begin to move forward. And, you know, based on the public work I've been doing in workshops, a number of women have now stood up and said, I'm taking gender equality programs back into my own organization. I'd be, I'm seeing how to begin to play this game radically differently. I'm much more comfortable because the way you're talking about it is so much more inclusive and involves 100% capacity leadership, regardless of gender, regardless of color. So I'm excited about that and, and hoping that it will be a, you know, a gift for people for the new year. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Good luck and I look forward to your book. Yes, thank you very much. All right, take care. Always good to talk to you. My conversation with Jennifer Kenny raised interesting points that I want to take a moment to highlight. First is what do we do when someone in our organization confronts us with blatant discrimination? In Jennifer Kenny's case, her male manager told her that we like to keep our women in the office. It was just policy that women don't go out into the field. And Jennifer thought that was ridiculous and resigned from the job the very same day. Now, we can't resign from our jobs every time someone draws a line in the sand that is blatant discrimination. However, the bigger point is that we have many other choices than to just take it. We can be clever and assertive about finding leverage to push against or change that discrimination. Second, what does women's leadership look like? And how do we help our male colleagues understand and articulate the ways that women leaders are inclined to add value? So that begs the question, what does women's leadership look like? Let's talk about women's leadership 1.0, where women act like men to be taken seriously in the workplace. 
We try to look like men, dress like men, talk like men, be authoritative like men, and sadly overwork at the expense of our health like men. It's very refreshing to hear that there is a new generation of women that are pioneering Women's Leadership 2.0, which is about figuring out how to be who we are as women and still be effective as leaders in our organizations. And part of that often means that our male colleagues don't really have the vocabulary to understand the value that women naturally bring to our organizations. There are ways that women naturally multitask, build relationships and network. There are ways women naturally get people to communicate, collaborate and cooperate across big organizations. These are some of our many natural talents and we need to enlighten our male colleagues on what we do and how we add value. Now this leads to the third point, which is that women who are in leadership now have an important role to play. It's great that some of us have moved up the corporate ladder, but one of the major things we should be putting on our to-do lists is being big advocates in our organizations to change the way we think about leadership so that women leaders are valued and respected. Otherwise, the next generation will find areas in their careers where they get stuck, as Jennifer Kenny calls it, to the flypaper. Another area that we discussed is how to think about and change our practices around racial discrimination in our organizations. Jennifer mentioned that for her, because she's Irish, which is a group in the United Kingdom, which historically have been oppressed and marginalized, it gives her valuable perspective on discrimination. So she has a fresh perspective on racial discrimination, what to do about it. First of all, many of us need to wake up to our own privilege. We will be better prepared to welcome people from underrepresented groups into our organizations when we understand the challenges they face and have perspective on the ways we can unconsciously be thoughtless in their direction. Jennifer Kenny talked about the amazing untapped potential that people from underrepresented groups can offer organizations and that it is crazy to not want to tap into that talent. I can't agree more. A third point is that we shouldn't treat everyone in our organizations the same, but it is helpful to offer extra resources when welcoming people who are from marginalized groups into our organizations to make sure they get the leverage they need to be successful. Well, I think we only scratch the surface in the perspective that Jennifer Kenny has to offer. I speak from personal experience from attending one of her workshops that she is a highly effective speaker, trainer, and facilitator. If you want to learn more about Jennifer, you can find lots of information about her at jenniferkenny.com. To close, I would like to repeat a point that Jennifer made at the end of our discussion on the value that women and other underrepresented groups can bring. She says, "Nature has given us this huge diversity and abundance, and we are deeply disrespectful." and unappreciative if we don't figure out how to leverage it. Well, that's my time for this podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Ciao. Thanks for listening to Getting to 50-50. If you enjoyed the show, spread the word by visiting www.pratimaraugluckman.com. After listening to the podcast, I hope you feel empowered to make a difference in your organization and communities. You have the power to change the world. Thanks again and see you next time.